0: Everybody, this is Robbie Gupta, and this is a special episode of the Lost Debate Show, uh, a show for political eclectics. We are welcoming back Isaac Saul from Tangle, who was just on a few weeks ago. Isaac, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me, man. I'm glad to be here. So, we're going to touch on a few topics today, I would say all involving our politics. And the first thing I wanted to ask you about is this debate. Or proposed debate between RFK Jr. and vaccine scientists stemming from this appearance that RFK Jr. made on Rogan. Do you mind just giving our listeners the background of what's going on here?
1: Yeah, for sure. So, you know, as probably, I think most people are starting to learn by now, if they haven't yet, RFK Jr. sort of best known, one of his best known traits, I think, is that he is a vaccine skeptic. He is, I, I guess you could. You know, pretty fundamentally an anti vaxxer. He's somebody who has called into question the safety of a lot of vaccines that are pretty popular in America today. And uh, of course, the COVID vaccine, which I think elevated him to sort of a new level of popularity. And he went on Joe Rogan recently, the biggest podcast in the world essentially to discuss his views on vaccines. I mean, he's obviously running a presidential campaign, but the context of his appearance, as they stated at the top of the show, was that Rogan wanted to give him like a fair platform to talk about his views and actually expound on them a bit. And they spent most of his three hours on the show talking about his perspectives on vaccines and, you know, a lot of other kind of health-related issues or big pharma issues Uh, and so, you know, he said a a lot of things on the show that I don't think are true. Uh, he said a few things on the show that were really kooky and totally out there, like about Wi-Fi giving you cancer and things like that. And, uh, the show went up, a lot of people heard it and the reaction from a lot of folks, primarily on the left, I think was pretty much outrage that Rogan had platformed him And in the show and after the show, Rogan and RFK Jr. proposed that, you know, maybe they could have this dialogue with somebody who disagreed with RFK Jr. And they suggested a guy named Dr. Peter Hotez, who has actually been on Joe Rogan's show before and was a very public-facing health official during the COVID pandemic. And Rogan ended up offering the guy $100,000 to come on the show for a quote-unquote debate and he declined and said it would basically be like going on Jerry Springer. And, uh, you know, so this, this debate about the debate broke out, which was whether someone like Peter Hotez should go actually have this conversation with someone like RFK Jr. If it was kind of debasing the scientific consensus on something like vaccines.
0: And so this became a debate about whether to debate. And, there's the you know Medi Hassan rule, I guess, is what people are calling it, which is that experts shouldn't debate cranks, as they see it, uh, and you know those are their words, not mine. So, and and I think that seems to be the position of a lot of people on the left, which is, hey, you know, don't you know, don't even do this guy a service of you know meeting him as equals, like one person's an expert on vaccine science and public health, and the other. From what I understand, RFK Junior. is not credentialed and says things that are discredited or without substance or without support. Uh, That's one position. Um, What what do you make of that argument?
1: Yeah. So I mean, I I actually, despite having some pretty strong reservations and criticisms for the things RFK Junior. said on the Rogan podcast, I very much do not like that argument. I, I for a few reasons. I mean, first of all, I'm sympathetic to the idea that somebody like Peter Hotes is a credentialed expert on something like vaccine safety, and that by putting him on a platform with RFK Jr., you were basically, you know, saying they are equal authoritative voices to talk about this topic. And I get that that the optics of that maybe are not something a lot of people in the scientific community want. However, I think we fail to recognize the kind of popularity and potency of what RFK Jr. is doing right now. And I think the idea that the scientific community can kind of rest on its laurels and sit on its hands and say, this is settled science and we are not going to give this guy any credibility or platform or authority to speak on this subject is actually a really wrong-headed way to handle it. Because what just happened is RFK Jr. got three hours on Joe Rogan, the biggest podcast in the world, without getting much pushback on pretty much anything he said. And I think that is bad. And I think the way to remedy that is not to expect RFK Jr. to stop getting platform, which isn't going to happen. His media appearances are probably only going to grow over the next few months. I think the way to do it is to put somebody in the room with him who can actually challenge him with authority on the things he's saying and make it clear that the stuff that he's describing as either settled isn't, or the stuff that he's describing as really pernicious and shady and, you know, conspiratorial perhaps has a more benign explanation than the one that he's offering. And so, you know, I love the idea of Peter Hotez actually going on RFK Jr. and debating him because not only is he a vaccine expert, he's supposed to be someone who is a public health official, which means he communicates the science to the public. I mean, his job is literally to be able to communicate effectively to the public about something like why vaccines are safe. You know, I, I heard Coleman Hughes recently talking about this, and he had a perfect analogy, in my opinion, which he said, this is basically like you know, somebody who spent their entire life fighting fires saying that they weren't going to go fight the biggest wildfire in California because, you know, it wasn't worth their time or something like that. I mean, (laughs) this is it. Like, this is the Super Bowl. You have the most high profile anti-vaxxer that we've had in a very long time. He's saying things that are not that hard to poke holes in. And you're saying, no, like we, it's not worth the time. We'll just legitimize him, whatever. And And I don't buy that. And on top of that, it should be noted, I mean, I I didn't see this get talked about enough in my opinion, but Peter Hotez is also the father of an autistic girl. His daughter has autism, which one of the chief things that RFK is saying that is unsubstantiated is that vaccines cause autism. And he wrote a whole book about how, you know, vaccines didn't give his daughter autism. I mean, he's basically dedicated a huge portion of his life to discrediting this kind of stuff which to me is like, slam dunk, this is the guy. But if it's not him, in my opinion, it should be somebody else. I think our scientific institutions need to put somebody forward who can actually go toe-to-toe with somebody. like. Has anybody
0: notable raised their hand? I'm sure somebody has.
1: I, I uh, from the scientific community, no. I saw the- How could was, that be though? I don't get it. Like- I, I, I'm sure, I'm sure that there are people out there. I, I I personally have not seen that. I imagine there's a lot of people with PhDs or who study vaccine injuries or whatever who are raising their hand on Twitter saying they'll do it. The only person who I saw <laughs> say something about how they would love to do the debate was Noah Smith, who is oh, yeah. an economist. Um, but he writes about a lot of stuff and very good with like, argument, argumentative positions and statistics and things like that. And I think he'd be an awesome guy to do it, except that then we just have two people who aren't experts in vaccines talking about them. Although I will say, you know, again, just for all the, all the criticism RFK Jr. aside, he has written a bunch of books about this. I mean, it's not like he's somebody who's just totally talking out of his behind. I mean, he is, dedicated a huge portion of his life to studying these issues and writing what I believe he thinks are credible arguments about things like vaccines. I mean, he wrote a whole book about Anthony Fauci, wrote a whole book about the link between, you know, certain ingredients in vaccines and allergies and public health for kids and autism and all this stuff. So, you know, he isn't a scientist for sure, but he's put a lot of words down about this issue in my opinion.
0: I feel like you're, you're being very generous because I did read your news your, your newsletter where you definitely came out very differently than no matter how many words he put down on that page. Uh, tell us where, because I think a listener would be like, oh, you're. Uh, I don't want people to be mistaken about where you came out on this. You said it before, but give us a sense of, for people who are not steeped in this argument, What's the argument, the main argument? And give us some of the sort of high-level takeaways that you had from this newsletter.
1: Yeah, sure. So so the main argument from RFK Jr. is basically that in the 1980s, we saw an explosion of autism, and that is also around the time that the vaccine schedule was really put into place in earnest. Honestly, that is basically the biggest thrust and the biggest piece of evidence in his argument, which... Again, on the surface level, might be like, oh, huh, that is kind of interesting. But like everybody knows, you know, correlations, not causation. And there are so many other ideas out there about why we've seen an uptick in the amount of, you know, uh, autism that's been diagnosed in kids. Uh, One of the really popular, like, scientific theories is that the age of fathers is going up and the age of parents is going up and that's actually causing an increase in these kind of like developmental issues or whatever you want to call them. Uh, The other stuff that sort of happened in the 80s was like a big change in our diets, a big change in certain pollutants, things like that. There's all sorts of Literature out there that I've seen that is, you know, kind of tied to how this is a more credible cause that's been linked to the increased diagnosis in autism. And then the big thing, and to me, you know, if I had to put my money on something, would just be the actual way that we're diagnosing autism. And in fact, most people that I've seen, the kind of consensus I've seen from people who are experts in autism and not necessarily vaccines talk a lot about how the way that we've diagnosed autism historically changed a lot. And in the 1980s, we didn't even, I mean, in the early 1980s, we didn't even have an autism diagnosis. It was basically like kids who had autism, their parents were being accused of bad parenting. I mean, that's basically how misunderstood it was at the time. And so today, I think there's a ton of evidence that, we actually have a a system for diagnosing autism that is not totally agreed upon a, a, among mental health professionals but is also something that differs so much state to state that we're seeing big disparities like i cited in the newsletter you know the the number of kids who get diagnosed with autism in colorado is much different than the number of kids, the proportion of kids who get diagnosed with autism in New Jersey, yet their vaccines are, the rate of you know childhood vaccines are basically identical, which to me is like a slam dunk on RFK Jr. that his case is pretty much bunk. But that's just a good example of the fact that like we don't have great agreement about even how to diagnose it. What we do know is we've been much more expansive in how we're diagnosing it over the last 40 years, which would explain the huge rise in cases. Um, There's also just like, he makes a lot of fundamental scientific mistakes. You know, I emailed and interviewed a bunch of vaccine injury experts in order to write this newsletter and quoted things from the podcast where, He's kind of conflating certain forms of mercury that appear in the vaccine and that are toxic versus, you know, mercury that you find out in nature that's more toxic in a different way. He conflates reasons about why that these certain ingredients were removed from vaccines, which he basically says was, you know, the CDC admitting that they're unsafe when really they remove them because of people like RFK spreading the myth that they're unsafe and they wanted to increase the amount of vaccines that people were taking because vaccines tend to prevent diseases and that's typically good for public health. Uh, There were a lot of sort of half-baked ideas that he put forward in the podcast. And yes, I wanna be clear, You know, everybody that I've contacted and and pretty much everybody I've read who is an expert on vaccines and vaccine injury and vaccine development, even people who are like really hard in the camp of we need more vaccine safety, basically say of all the things that we think might be causing the rise in autism vaccines are like the one thing that we've studied so much. They're the the one thing that we've had to refute so many times that we can almost definitively cross it off before any other theory that's out there about why the rates of autism are going up. And, you know, I believe that RFK Jr. is just genuinely attached to this idea and he steeps so much of his rhetoric in it. And he has made it such a huge part of his career that it's impossible for him. E- even if you showed him smoking gun evidence that he was wrong, he just wouldn't be able to back off it because it's such a core part of his message around, you know, the corruption of of big pharma and agency capture and all these other things. And, uh, you know, it's, it's very frustrating to read about and write about and listen to, but, if someone like me who doesn't have a science degree can understand why RFK Jr. is so wrong, then I think there should be a public health official out there who can explain that to pretty much anybody. And that's why I very much support a public health official doing that and why I'm kind of disappointed nobody is.
0: And what would you say, like, uh, this is where I'm, I'm going to ask you to armchair psychologize the main players here. So starting with the public health officials, how do you chalk this up to arrogance, which I think is if you read, like, the free press or Ben Shapiro or people like that, they're the valence of their criticism is like, Hey, these are arrogant people. Uh, and they kind of group together a lot, masking science. If you read Shapiro, he groups together global warming science and transgender stuff and all that, which like, obviously we don't have the time or the stomach <laughs> to probably go into all of that. Uh, or why he groups all those together, frankly, but the, how, look, what's your sense of what's happened here with the public health community writ large? And I don't want to paint with a broad brush because for every, you know, guy who might refuse a debate, there are people like Nicholas Christakis who seems to show up anywhere he's asked, from what I can tell. But what do you think? This is arrogance? Do you think it's defensiveness? Do you think they're just nerdy scientists who aren't comfortable in the public square? That wouldn't explain this guy, other guy, because he was on Rogan already. So,
1: yeah, I mean, look, I, I think in the case of Dr. Hotez and, and, you know, based on the interview you referenced that he did with Mehdi Hassan on MSNBC and the position they kind of staked out, they seem to just be saying that Rogan wouldn't be a good moderator and this format wouldn't be a good format for the debate because RFK Jr. can just kind of fire hose a bunch of sort of factually inaccurate or half-truths That Hotez, you know, wouldn't have the time or the ability to kind of deconstruct one by one, and that when you're debating somebody like this who doesn't have the the hard evidence on their side, they are a lot more slippery and they're a lot more malleable, and they can use a lot more kind of political esque rhetoric in a scientific debate, which I think is a totally fair argument. I mean, I think more to my frustration is just like are you telling me that we don't have a public health official who can get in the ring with RFK junior? I know mean, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Like, yeah. Like, <laughs> is that really where we're at? Is that what we're saying? Because like, if that's true, then we, then we have like big problems. I mean, we really need somebody who can step up and have this discussion and use the same kind of tactics and use the same kind of rhetoric that maybe make RFK junior a little slippery but do it in a way that's based on the fundamental science that they're defending and kind of convince the people who are genuinely on the fence or open-minded mm-hmm. about this stuff. And and I, again, I want to be clear, there's, you know, based on certain polls, you look at roughly one in five American adults who share RFK Jr.'s views on vaccines, certainly the COVID vaccine, th- th- that's tens of millions of people. I mean, we're not talking about like Holocaust denial. We're talking about like real legitimate fears that people have, real distrust they have. And again, most of the biggest stuff RFK Jr. is saying about like vaccines causing autism is total bunk and Wi-Fi and cancer, total bunk. And some of the things he gets really wrong about the kinds of like, Allergens or root causes of you know childhood chronic disease that I think he's like totally off on. All that stuff aside, he the way most people in his position act really effectively is they sprinkle bits of truth in there. And the yeah. truths that he's sprinkling in there are like, we do have an agency capture problem. We do have, you know, regulators who are taking a lot of money from the industries they're supposed to regulate, or the people who used to be in those industries are now the regulators. And Th- they leave the industry or they leave the regulation and go work in the industry. And you know, th- there are a lot of real issues that I think he sort of broadly points to that resonate for me. But on the whole, it's just nuts to me that we don't have somebody who can kind of step in the ring and puncture holes in him. Because for me, I'm like, I, I asked a few experts what they thought and got a few pretty straightforward explanations. And read some stuff and watched a couple of YouTube videos. And I was like, oh, okay. I like pretty much understand where RFK Jr. is coming from, how he's wrong. And I think I can explain it like I just did here. And I don't know why somebody with like a doctor in front of their name can't go do that on a podcast. I mean, that seems like a really effective way to limit the way that this stuff spreads. Because right now he's getting basically really friendly interviews and a really easy way to kind of grease the wheels of spreading this stuff, which I do think is dangerous. Like if fewer kids are getting vaccines for like measles, mumps, and rubella or whatever, that's a big problem. I mean, that will have long-term really damaging effects for the country.
0: Well, yeah. And you have a a great section of of your write-up about who RFK Jr. is and reminding people why this is a person who attaches themselves to theories like this. And, you know, we don't I do want to talk about a couple other topics, so I don't want to go down this rabbit hole too much. But essentially, you remind us that his father was killed, his uncle was killed. Um, he's had other tragedies. Like, I didn't even know this until I read your your newsletter, but apparently his ex-wife, while they were going through divorce, committed suicide. Yeah. Uh, there's just been a lot of tragedy in his life, and he seems to have, have – he's kind of a pattern-seeking Machine, and he believes the CA might have been involved in either his uncle or his father's murder or both. And, you know, he kind of started off on a path where he was predisposed to believe. And who who the hell? Honestly, I don't know what the hell happened with his uncle. Like, I don't know whether you probably have done a a, a newsletter, I'm sure, on it, but I I don't know what theory makes sense or not. So, um, I do find it puzzling that it, it took him so long to declassify so much of those files, but yeah. I mean, look again,
1: I think I don't, I don't remember exactly what the poll numbers are, but a a healthy majority of Americans do not believe that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone in killing RFK Jr. I mean, it's not, it's like way more than half. Um, so, you know, like that's not, again, that's not like a fringe view. Yeah. Imagine that that was your
0: uncle and then your father was killed shortly after that. That's like a, right. You know, And Whether like, that's true or not, i I don't know. i i I know a lot of sensible people who say it was a lone gunman or whatever. I just it's to me it's not a priority, but it would be if it were your family, right? yeah,
1: for sure. and like, and the point of that section that I tried to flesh out was just like I sympathize with and understand somebody in r f k jr's position being extremely skeptical about, you know, the the quote unquote machine, like the yeah. institutions. I mean, If I had the life he had, I would probably be very skeptical of them too. And remember, RFK Jr. is not, he did not find, I mean, according to his story, the way that he tells it is not that he went and sought out this like vaccine skepticism or that he had his own questions he couldn't get answered. I mean, he says that when he was going around the country doing the the bulk of his work, which was environmental defense work around, you know, like stopping pollution in rivers and a lot of things that most liberals would be like super on board about. He was encountering a lot of women, mothers who were coming to him saying that their kids were damaged by the vaccine and asking, damaged by some vaccine and asking him to look into it. I mean, that is his origin story as he tells it. I don't have any reason to think that part of the story is not true. And
0: so, you know- It checks out if you think about what the anti-vaccine community used to be known as. I, and I don't think those people have gone away. It used to be known as a left-wing- Totally. Uh, phenomenon. Now, it's still, it still has left-wing elements to it. Obviously, it's become broader than that. So that that checks out. Obviously, I don't know what's in his heart or his head, but that story checks out to me.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I'm just saying, like, if someone like that with his predispositions who gets told this story by a bunch of women who are telling him that their kids were hurt by this vaccine, why, why would he doubt that that was possible? Or why would he not go into that with, like, some biases towards believing their story was true rather than going in with a bunch of skepticism about it? I mean that part of it totally makes sense to me. And I think it's worth remembering that and humanizing him a little bit, even though I do think his views are in a lot of ways, you know, abhorrent and and dangerous and, and could have really dangerous outcomes, but all the more reason to engage them in my opinion and kind of break them down.
0: You have a theory about the House Freedom Caucus. So tell me about this. First of all, remind our audience who the House Freedom Caucus is and, and tell us what is a bit of a zag, I think, on your part.
1: Yeah, sure. So the House Freedom Caucus is, you know, I think most commonly described as a far right group of their far right caucus, a group that kind of works together in the House and in Congress to pass legislation and they stick together on votes. I mean, that's basically how caucuses function in Congress. And they are the ones who made Kevin McCarthy's uh, process to become House Speaker very, very difficult by essentially extracting a bunch of concessions from him in order to give over their votes and make him house speaker which they were empowered to do because republicans house majority is so thin right now and they did something pretty remarkable a couple weeks ago i mean they they basically ground the the process in the house votes in the house to a halt By objecting on basically a vote on a House rule, which in, you know, historically is something that happens without a thought. It's, you know, whatever party is in the majority passes these House rules to bring up legislation, to move legislation forward without having to worry at all about the vote being in question. And this is sort of because... The House has become kind of rubber stamp from the top down, in my opinion. Most, most policy issues are being brought up for votes once House leadership on either side is certain that the legislation is going to pass or has a good chance of passing. And they didn't get what they wanted out of the debt ceiling negotiations, out of the debt ceiling standoff. They thought that McCarthy kind of got railroaded by President Biden, which I think is in some ways a pretty reasonable way to view what happened. I do think Biden got the best of that outcome and um, they objected to that. And so there, were, there was, I think it was two bills related to, gas stoves and, you know, ensuring that gas stoves couldn't be banned to reduce emissions. And maybe there was also a bill related to carrying firearms that were like Republican legislation. They were It was messaging legislation. Neither bill had a chance to pass in the democratically controlled Senate, but they stopped the bills in this very early process in the, the voting process. It's a very early stage in the voting process to move these bills forward, which I don't think, I I we I had the number in my newsletter, I think it was 21 years, something in that ballpark, around 20 years since something like this had happened in Congress, and it basically started this standoff between them and Kevin McCarthy, and they're demanding a power-sharing agreement, and uh, they're essentially, you know, we're, we're holding these two bills hostage in order to make the point that McCarthy wasn't engaging them the way that he had promised from his house speaker fight and the, you know, all the backdoor agreements that we still don't really understand that happened when he became house speaker. And the general consensus, I think on both sides, you know, was that they were causing a lot of chaos or dysfunction some Republicans who are more establishment Republicans were just like, these guys are embarrassing themselves, describing them as, you know, kids throwing their toys out of the crib, I think is what the New York Post said. Uh, the Obviously, some more further right or kind of new right, Trump right, Republican pundits were backing them, saying this was like a great sign of strength by them. And then everybody on the left was basically saying like, you know, McCarthy is now captured by the you know, the far right wing of the party. And uh, I disagreed. I didn't really see it that way. I, I, in fact, didn't really see it as a
0: bad thing. And so I basically made that case in my in my newsletter. Yeah, and and I think you said you don't necessarily agree with them on policy, but I think it's more of a procedural support, right? You like the idea of members having more power and challenging their leadership. Is that right? Yeah, so, so the, the context here is that
1: for the last, you know, 20 years for sure, probably more than that, House leadership in both parties has been concentrating their power. And they're doing this effectively by coming up with legislation, having their aides, their teams draft legislation, going to their counterparts in the other party, agreeing to certain compromises on the legislation, and then bringing it to the floor and whipping their, you know, whipping votes for it, by basically telling their caucus members, like, get get on board and play ball, be a team player and vote for this because we said this is gonna be good for us for reasons XYZ and trying their best to squash rebellion when it pops up and and get whatever they decide they want to be law to get passed. And that is basically how Congress has functioned for at for sure, the last ten years, but a little bit longer too. And I think you know Nancy Pelosi, who I have a very high regard for as a political operator. I think she is, you know, arguably one of the most powerful House speakers ever. Had that power and was historically powerful because she ruled kind of with an iron fist on the left. I mean, people fell in line when she said it was time to go when it was time to vote. And she figured out ways to pressure people and leverage her members and get them in line. And the kind of political chattering class describes that in very endearing terms. Like she was incredible because she was so good at this and so good at counting votes and so good at keeping her party in line. But I think there's another kind of reverse perspective of that, which is like, she took a lot of power away from her members who were elected from their districts to go represent the needs of their constituents. And to me, this power play from the House Freedom Caucus is giving them as individual members more power, which if you are a member in their district is a good thing. And people who are members in their districts are constituents. They're normal Americans who voted for them. So I actually like the idea that we're going to get some more bottom-up rule in Congress and that House leadership has to think more about what their members want.
0: See, uh, let me give the counterpoint on this one, which is, you and i both rank partisan gerrymandering as among some the one of the worst practices in politics if not the most pernicious i think in a world where we have partisan gerrymandering to the extent that we have right now plus we have the hastert rule in the house which for our listeners is a informal rule that's existed since denny hastert was the house speaker in the bush administration that says that uh, the the Speaker of the House won't bring a bill to the floor unless they have a majority of the majority of members. It has been broken from time to time, including on some key pieces of legislation that we talked about. But uh, when you combine those two, it means that extremist members who are birthed from the gerrymandering itself, so aren't necessarily representative of America, but yeah, they may represent their district, but their districts aren't Organically created entities, right? They they're, they're representing a extreme, laser printed geographies, and then they're given the power to stop things from happening in a climate that a lot of people feel like is already obstructionist and polarized. To me, that worries me. Uh, if they were, if this were truly like the luck of the draw and the average member who represents a, an amalgamation of Americans, I would feel a little bit differently about it.
1: Yeah. Look, I mean, I think. First of all, I guess I, I'd respond to that by saying, A, I don't think the fix to gerrymandering is to take power away from, you know, low ranking members of Congress. And I'm not saying you're suggesting that, but like the implication that because gerrymandering is such a big issue, we shouldn't, we we should be really careful about, you know, empowering the people who are getting elected I think it's the opposite. I think we should be really concerned about gerrymandering because people we send to Congress have a lot of power and we don't want them to be extremist members. Um, Second, though, I would just say, even taking that context, like accepting, I think, that that argument, which I think is a, a potent position to have, is that this could have the kind of unintended consequence of creating more bipartisanship and more moderation. And I sort of referenced this offhand in my newsletter, and I think we shared an argument from Philip Wallach, who uh, is kind of like a center-right conservative at the American Enterprise Institute about this. But, you know, we saw this with the debt ceiling standoff. McCarthy didn't have the votes to resolve this just on his own with Republicans, and so he needed Democrats who would cross the aisle. And so the result was that he ended up working with this faction of kind of moderate Republicans, middle of the road Republicans who didn't want to play chicken on the debt ceiling, and then a bunch of Democrats who helped him cross the finish line. And that formula could be replicated on like a number of issues. And I, I, in my opinion, if the House Freedom Caucus isn't careful, the, the reality of what they're going to create is that they're actually going to end up losing power because they're going to force McCarthy basically to not get anything done or to have a bunch of failed votes or just go court 20 Democrats to get legislation passed. And so I think there's a world where this creates some moderation. It creates some more bipartisanship. And I'd also say like, you know, the the Hassert rule, yeah, it's it's broken occasionally, but like, The spirit of Congress to me should not be a place where we know the outcome of what's going to happen when a bill gets brought up. I mean, I said this again in the newsletter, like, I think we should embrace a Congress where things are a little less predictable, where these like last minute deals are struck, where compromise is made, where amendments happen and people back off their positions because they want something else. And, you know, we think a bill is dead on arrival. And then this interesting coalition of like Matt Gates and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are working together to, to get a bill across the finish line. I mean, these new coalitions to me would be healthy and better representing America. And there's a lot of different
0: outcomes here that I think could, could happen. So. Yeah. I I think of it an analogy to New York state, which has a very empowered legislature and legislative leadership too. And it's a similar issue to Congress in the sense that if, if not for the strength of the speakers, our taxes would be like double, our policy would be a mess right now, then again, the politics that would sort itself out probably. and, and, Things would be such a mess that the voters eventually would rise up. There would be a lot of carnage. Um, on the flip side, that that empowered leadership has also led to a lot of the biggest corruption we've ever had as a state before, right? That lack of transparency. Uh, but I think like the problem is when when we I think of this in context, right? You say like, well, I, we want a world where we don't know what's going to happen and all that. I think if we're talking about an appropriations bill, I'm like, okay, great. Like, let's have. You know, let's have a lack of predictability. When we're talking about pushing the United States to the brink of a debt disaster and the full faith and credit of the United States being called into question, which to me is a outgrowth of gerrymandered politics, where extremists are rewarded for extremism, that starts to make me nervous where I'm like, actually I want that to be to be predictable. That's where I want a a grown-up empowered to take that over the finish line.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think that's a totally fair argument, and and I would say also, you know, since I've written that piece, we've seen Lauren Boebert introduce articles of impeachment against Biden for you know quote unquote like dereliction of duty on the southern border and tried to bring them up for a vote, and we saw Adam Schiff get censored, get censored after they. You know, attempted to attach like a sixteen million dollar fine to his censure or something like that. So I, I, it, it's not like I believe that they're acting <laughs> totally responsibly with this newfound power. I think like um, some of that stuff they're they're kind of clowning themselves on. It's more that I think dispersing that power throughout Congress in the long term is a good thing, and it, and you know for all the positives and negatives of Nancy Pelosi's tenure or whatever on the left, I think the next time Democrats get a House majority, they should think really strongly about implementing rules that give some more bottom-up power to members, because I think that is a vision of how Congress should function that probably resonates with a lot of average Americans. And I think when anybody hears uh, the tale of how Congress has functioned, which I think is a totally realistic, accurate portrayal of how it's functioned for the last couple of decades, where leadership on both parties basically gets together and decides what they're going to do, and then does their best to force all their their members into voting for it. I think most people probably would not support that mm-hmm. kind of you know functionality. So um, yeah, your points are totally well taken. I I do not believe that the House Freedom Caucus is acting responsibly with what they're actually bringing up for for votes or trying to push through. I thought the debt ceiling standoff was incredibly counterproductive and stupid and dangerous and I don't think that's how we should make spending cuts in Congress but i i do think that the tangible outcomes of what they did in terms of wresting power from kevin mccarthy could have a really long-term positive effect and and might be something that democrats want to think about emulating when they're creating their house rules the next time they have a majority which based on how things are going right now could be
0: fairly soon <laughs> is every candidate has entered the race, you've written about them. What are some of the, give me like a couple of the underrated uh, threads in this campaign season uh, for you? Yeah,
1: that's a good question. Um, Look, I think first of all, like there is a very strong, I I, I don't know if I want to call it like a last breath, but I think a... a a really big contingent of the last breath of the Republican establishment trying to fight one last time to get a candidate through. I mean, um, seeing Mike Pence enter the race to me is just like so laughable in so many ways. Like him, Nikki Haley, uh, even to some degree, Tim Scott, I am surprised they're going to invest the amount of money and time they are in what I think is like a total futile effort to become president. And I think it represents the fact that like the Republican establishment is doing everything they can to kind of
0: keep Trump from getting reelected. And, and just to put some numbers behind that, the last, and, and national polls, We could talk about the utility of national polls versus the early state polls or how early we are right now in the process. But right now, the latest NBC poll, which tracks roughly the the RCP average on this, is Trump 51, DeSantis 22, Pence 7, Haley 4, Scott 3, Christie 5, Ramaswamy 3, Hutchinson 2, and then Elder and Bergen with zero.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I hadn't checked those numbers for a few weeks, but that's about what I would expect given where things are. Um, you know, I, I think when we, when, when this whole race started, everybody was kind of talking about how like the biggest gift to Trump would be if there was this huge Republican field. Yeah. And for some reason, I feel like we've stopped talking about that now that the huge Republican field is in play, but like, this is a huge gift to Trump. I mean, take everything out of it, all the indictments, all your feelings about him, whatever, just from a pure numbers game, the math of how this stuff works. Uh, Trump is in a really good position, you know, something approaching like an ironclad position to get the nomination right now because so much of the support that for his opponents is kind of dispersed across these like 10 plus candidates who have entered the race, many of whom have very similar backgrounds or, you know, policy perspectives. Um to me, you know, obviously DeSantis is the one who everybody thinks has the best shot of beating Trump. I think that's still 100% true. I think he definitely still has a shot to win the nomination. I don't think he's by any means out of it yet. Um his campaign seems to be hot and cold these days, but you know, he's still a really popular governor and he's not Trump, which is going to be the the biggest thing most Republicans who aren't voting for Trump are looking for. Uh, I think Tim Scott's a super interesting candidate. I very, you know, very much respect a lot of the stuff that he's running on, which is tied deeply to like his personal story and you know his family's rise from you picking cotton to him being a U.S. senator and now he says cotton to
0: Congress. Yeah. Yeah,
1: cotton to Congress, which is an awesome slogan. I mean, it's a it's a it's a beautiful way to sum up his story. I think, and is something that is. Uh, effectively kind of I guess nipping the bud of a lot of like the, the race issues and the stuff that he likes to talk about and bring up, despite the fact that he talks a lot about not liking to talk about race, which he really does do a lot. Uh, (laughs) But you know, he's, he's, he's to me like a really, really um, seasoned political veteran at this point. He's somebody who I've seen him go in unfriendly territory. He went on the view and did an interview and I thought he, you know, he got challenged on a bunch of his views and he stuck to them in, in really compelling and convincing fashion. I think if people see a lot of him, you could see him rise in the polls. Chris Christie's, you know, if he gets on the debate stage, it's going to be fireworks. He's basically running just
0: to ruin Trump. It seems like he has no other purpose. And I think the rule that. is, right, in order to get to that debate, you have to say you'd support the Republican nominee, which will be interesting how these folks are going to lawyer themselves through that. One thing that's mentioned worth mentioning for Scott is he's got twenty two million on hand from his last Senate campaign, so that's yeah. that's a lot of money to start with. Yeah, for sure. I mean, they all a few of them have a lot of money. Obviously, Ramaswamy is self funded. Desantis has a huge war chest uh, from his gubernatorial campaign. Trump can raise money at the you know push of a button and has a ton of money in the bank as well. You know, I'm looking at these numbers, right? And I think an interesting question to ask is not who's one, two, and three because I think. Most people would be sensible saying one and two are Trump and DeSantis. Like most people would argue that, but who's who's weaker or stronger than their poll numbers today? Show, and that's where I would agree with you on Scott. He's at he's pulling at three percent, and to me, he feels like he's stronger than three. Probably not fifty percent, but he feels stronger than three. Now, then again, I'm a Democrat, so maybe that's a that's a knock against him. Is that I see that in him. But the, the other thing, like a lot of the things I think a lot of people who aren't Republicans look at and don't like about Scott, like his abortion positions, for example, or even the way he talks about race, you got to put your mind itself in the mind of a Republican primary voter, not a Democrat, right? Like I think some things he might say, especially his abortion positions, will be liabilities in the general election, but you know, you got to win the pennant before you win the series. And none of that stuff's really gonna hold him back now.
1: Yeah, no, I I think that Scott is probably the one who, you know, if you gave every candidate in this race equal exposure to the American public, I think he would probably have the fastest rise. Uh, I think Pence having 7% of the vote is still probably the one who's batting. You know, I, I to me, he's, uh, you know, his, his
0: odds are about as good as, as
1: or, you know, Vivac or some yeah, of the other guys. I would go so far low. as to say
0: Ramaswamy has a better chance than Pence based on what I've seen from Ramaswamy. I, I think he's – I think he – I I question how genuine he is in some of his positions, if not many of them, but he has a good bloodthirst for somebody like good is the wrong word. He has an effective bloodthirst. Like I think what he did around the Trump indictment, which to be clear, I disagree with substantively, but going down there and challenging his opponents very quickly to support a pardon, that's good theatrics. That's politics. Like when you're, when you're the major, major underdog, those are the kind of things that you need to do to gain attention.
1: Yeah, I mean I think he is going all out on buying the attention and the the support of the you know the Trump supporters who are might be looking for a second option. I think like if you took everybody who's voting for Trump and asked who their number 2 candidate was, I think if Vivek gets enough exposure, he's going to climb the ranks of that pretty quickly. Uh, I will say, you know, I heard him interviewed on the Fifth Column podcast, which is a kind of a great host for like some libertarian and sort of center right and center left thinking. And they have a few hosts who have all different kind of perspectives. And, you know, he he seemed a lot more malleable in some of his views than I thought. I mean, I, I felt throughout the interview him kind of shifting his positions as the arguments went on and sort of hedging his language in a way where I, I left feeling very similar to you that that I questioned the authenticity of some of his views, which you know as a candidate or somebody I would vote for to me is a negative, but as somebody who's figuring out what his messaging is going to be for the public could end up being something that kind of benefits him in a national race where by the time he's getting really tons of lots of exposure on the debate stage, whatever it is. Um, he could be striking some notes that have broad popularity on the right. And he's really, really well-spoken. He's he's very good at sort of the combative, you know, Thunderdome political stuff that's going on. Right now, I think like... Of all the candidates, he's he's the most like somebody like Chris Christie or something like that where he can go into a really combative space and kind of hold his own and and knows how to change the subject and throw punches in the political sense. He, and-
0: he can't overstate how important it is that he's self-funding his campaign because although he has to raise the threshold to enter the debates, like which is a certain amount of small donations I think he needs to get there, he's not going to have to do the same dance that most of the rest of the candidates have to do where they're, they're having to divide their time between you know, these closed fundraising events and the trail. Uh, and in some cases, DeSantis being governor, closed fundraising events and the trail. So he's got a lot of time to spend in Iowa shaking hands.
1: Yeah, totally. I, in fact, I'm pretty sure Vivek Ramaswamy is already qualified for the debate. I think he's hit he's hit those thresholds already. So he he's basically playing with house money at this point um which is a pretty big advantage for him. I thought Nikki Haley was going to be more interesting as a candidate and maybe you know there'd be some more fireworks around what she was doing but uh I've left feeling pretty not hopeful about her yeah. odds to to make any kind of big impact on the race.
0: Yeah, I just have a hard time like every time she she comes out with something on a major issue I'm left thinking after she speaks what was her position? it's like I, I'm. it's never totally clear to me I think Scott has a bit of that issue too but I think she has it worse uh, well okay with that Isaac thanks for being with us remind our listeners where they can get your newsletter yeah thanks for having me uh, anybody
1: interested please go to readtangle.com r-e-a-d-t-a-n-g-l-e dot com uh, the newsletter's free so you can sign up and, and give it a shot without giving us any money and if you like it you can become a member and support some of the work we're doing The Last Debate is a part of the branch network. The show is produced by Mickey Ayub, research support by Ariane Misra, video editing by Julia Waldman, and editing and sound design by Dean Metherill.